Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Oristano. I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I play Billy Riggins. Our assumption is that you, our listeners, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, please go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers. And guys, we've got merch. That's right. So go check out our brand new website designed by Eleanor Carez, who is at Eleanor Carez on Instagram. Our website is www.cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Once again, that's cleareyesfullheartspod.com. And please go check it out because we've got all kinds of merchandise. We've got hoodies and hats and shirts. And Stacy always laughs when I say this. I like it when you say stickers. We have stickers. Every few weeks, we'll do an audience participation episode just to answer your questions. So email us what you want to know at cleareyesfullheartspod at gmail.com. Today, we're talking about season one, episode 17, I Think We Should Have Sex. It was written by Liz Heldens and directed by Allison Liddy Brown. And here is our NBC synopsis. The Panthers are deep into playoffs and all the players feel untouchable. Meanwhile, Julie drops a bomb on an unsuspecting Matt when she says she's ready to have sex for the first time. And we have an amazing guest with us today, the ridiculously talented Brett Collum, who played my dad, Walt Riggins, on the show. So let's get into the highlights of this episode, and then we'll go ahead and talk to Brett. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, off the bat, it just seems that Walt is hustling. That seems to be his job. He's a hustler. If it's not on the golf course, now it's in a bar and it's uh, he's hustling pool. And yeah, I, I think this probably isn't going to end well. Don't you know? I do. <laughs> and then the, this hit me. I should Again, this has happened to me before. It's the title of the episode. But God, when Julie said that, I blushed and I put my hands to my face and thought, oh my God, oh God, Julie, no. Like, where did that come from? Exactly. I mean, two seconds ago, we were talking about grandma's tapioca pudding and now Julie <laughs> wants to have sex. This It totally caught me off guard. I've seen the episode. I knew it was coming, but it, it's also one of the things that I kind of love about Julie is that there's, that she's not great at the uh, transition sometimes. It's just yes, boom, stream of consciousness. 
says everything she's thinking. Yeah, which is kind of a wonderful quality. Until later in the episode, there's a scene coming up. And then next, I screamed at Danielle. You guys, Derek and I have a very good friend named Danielle Renee who plays, she was the girl behind the table, the dark-haired girl. And I think later she sort of becomes Herc's girlfriend, but I was very happy to see her face. Yeah, this is kind of how we met Danielle. I guess we met Danielle through the show, but I didn't quite realize that she was in this episode. Yeah, Danielle's one of my best good friends out there. And uh, so, yeah, this was a cool little moment because I had totally forgotten that this scene with her still existed. So that was always great. Shout out, Danielle Renee. That makes me happy. (laughs) Okay, this is kind of a huge 180 for Billy. Essentially, that kind of given up on Tim or given over to Walt being there in the scene with Tyra. I want to know, how did you justify this as an actor? Uh, It's a little frustrating because as an actor, we had shot four or five separate scenes in the last two episodes that all wound up getting cut. Every one of those scenes was with me and Walt. Brett Cullen. Brett's going to be on the show a little bit later to discuss all those scenes and and the scenes that got cut. But yeah, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that happened. There was a scene where uh, Tim and I were having breakfast. Dad was making us breakfast. Billy's very resentful of the fact that Walt is in the house and Tim starts making fun of Billy and and Dad and Tim kind of tag team making fun of Billy. And you can see that the, the wheels start spinning. There's another scene that happens where Billy comes home. Dad is drinking his booze. Billy gets into an argument with him. Tim kind of takes Dad's side. So there's all this stuff that's kind of there's a jealousy that's kind of brewing in Billy because of the fact that dad's in his house and kind of taking over the the responsibility of being Tim's guardian and Tim's protector. And I think it starts to eat it at Billy and Billy and Tim kind of have it out. And so in this scene, it kind of comes out of left field, but Billy's no longer living at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's another scene where Billy and dad get into it and Billy peels out of the house and leaves and, and just pissed off, peels out and leaves. It's actually, the first time I think we ever even see Billy as a car, which was like a, a blue Trans Am, late model Trans Am, you know, like 1980s Trans Am. I don't remember ever saying that car. I don't know that we ever used the car again. We might have used the car in a later episode. We'll have to see when we get to it, Stace. But I think maybe there's an episode. Well, I know that this happens in a later episode. You and I get into an argument and we're dating at this point in time. And I pull up to ask your forgiveness, basically, in the front yeah, lawn. And I think I might have been in my car. But I don't know that we ever established Billy's car after that. Yeah, so there's a lot of stuff that leads up to this. But then all of a sudden, Billy's like staying with some random girl and Tyra shows up. So Billy's left the house. So th- there's a lot of stuff that happened that, that got cut, unfortunately. And when Brett's on later, we'll we'll discuss it in a little more detail. I get the 180. It's a little frustrating as an actor because I I know that fans are sitting there watching the show like, what the hell's going on? Why is Billy at this girl's house? Where? Why is Billy not at home? Why is Billy all of a sudden not care about Tim? It does yeah. feel like it's a massive pivot, but I promise you it was earned. Billy does care. Yeah, we just never got to see why this all happened and why Billy bolted. I think I said in the last episode in 16 how I'm always seeing Coach Taylor take on everybody's problems. I said there was not there was never a time when he's like, eh, not my problem. Don't, I don't want to deal with it. He just takes on the brunt of everybody. But this is finally a time when coach is like, hey, you know what? Not my problem. When Buddy starts talking to him about having an affair and he's like, nope, absolutely not. I think he makes the best decision you possibly can in that situation, which is, dude, try and get this resolved with you and your wife and don't involve me. He's not going to sit there and rubber stamp Buddy Garrity's behavior. Rubber stamp it. These two crazy kids 
buying condoms at the store. And I was like, oh, sweet. Another golden comical Landry Matt scene. And then we pull back and reveal that Tammy, oh God, Tammy is seeing them. The amount of audible noises I made during this episode, I was mortified. Yeah, this one's uncomfortable. It's beyond uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable as a person who loves Matt, and it's uncomfortable as a person who loves Tammy. I just, ugh. He's QB1. I would think he would want to go to a whole other city if he wanted to buy something like that, because everyone's going to notice him and see him there. Maddie. And then the scene after, it's almost worse, because, yeah, then Tammy has a conversation with Julie about it. But I do love... It's uncomfortable. And I love this scene. I love it for one specific reason. And I remember reading this scene on paper when we got the script and going, oh, because now I'm kind of hearing all the voices of all the actors when I would read the scripts. Mm -hmm. That's a really fun thing that starts to happen is you go, okay, I can see how Connie's going to kind of play this scene. And I think I know how Julie will kind of play this scene. But then something really fun kind of happened in this scene. And that's the fact that Amy as an actress kind of giggled when Connie said making love. And Connie's response to Amy, the actress, Mm -hmm. was she said, don't you do that. Don't you do that. Don't you smirk at me right now. And that's Connie literally saying that to Amy. It's not Tammy saying it to Julie. And it's kind of this beautiful little moment because that wasn't scripted, but it also, you know, I mean, Amy, I think at this point in time was 17 years old. Amy was younger than that. Yeah. Because her mom was still on set. You're right. She was a pun- she was a pumpkin. You guys, we call minors pumpkins on set because they have like child labor laws and they can't be on set after a certain time. So they get pumpkined out. You're not allowed to work after that. And there's also something that I found fascinating about this scene. And that's the fact that I think that we're seeing that maybe Tammy's first go around or first time having sex was with someone that she didn't love and and maybe she regrets it. I got that too when she was saying the effects that it could have on you, that you'll feel degraded. And I was like, oh, that's a yeah. that's a big word to say. There was some backstory there behind those eyes. It felt like there was. And I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd love once we, when we have uh, Connie on the show, I, I think that'd be a great question to ask her. That's one of those moments, definitely an FNL moment. FNL moment. Okay, listen. Walt's already this like hustler, grifter guy, but then does it get any worse than stealing from your kid's school? Coach shows up at the Riggins' house to talk to him about it. And it's, yeah, just an uncomfortable moment. This is a scene I've actually talked about a couple of times on the show where Coach is walking up to the house and he steps in something. And he's walking up to the Riggins' house and he steps in, we don't know if it's poop or if it's mud, but it's one of those moments where on any other show, they would have said, cut. Hey, go clean up whatever's in the yard. They didn't do that on this show. And it's kind of perfect because, of course, there would be something disgusting in the Riggins house, whether it be dog crap or just mud or whatever. And a That's used so banana funny. Peel. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, Kyle's wiping his shoe off because he stepped in something. This whole scene makes me so uncomfortable because I hate confrontation anyway. I'm very uncomfortable with it. Just when watching this confrontation. Again, just Coach Taylor taking on all the problems in the world. Speaking of comfortable scenes, Stacey, how about this uh, next one? I have things to say. <laughs> this this guy, Buddy Garrity, sleeps with my mother, fires her because of it, and then straight up offers to hand her cash. Everything about it is so gross. As much as I love Buddy Garrity, this is probably not his shining moment on the show. I mean, I guess I love to hate Buddy Garrity a lot of times, but yeah, this this moment, it's like, come on, man. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, it's it's just a lot of wrong. I am wondering if this, when we were going to Jason down in Austin, if this is the first time we've heard Jason tell his 
side of becoming paralyzed. It's a really different way to hear Jason talk than the way that he talks to people in Dylan. There's something that's really fascinating about this scene to me, just in general, in, the, in this little romance that's kind of brewing between Jason and Susie, who's the uh, the tattoo artist, who's played wonderfully by Alexandra Holden. But first of all, I mean, for all of our viewers out there, or listeners out there, like, she is the exact opposite of Lila Garrity. And I think oh, that yeah. this is an opportunity for Jason to see that there's a whole world out there and that he can find love outside of Lila. And we've talked about the fact that, like, Jason, I think out of fear, proposed to Lila because he was afraid he was going to lose her. And I think he's afraid that no one would ever love him. And I think he's realizing that there's a whole world out there. And there's people that will care about him. There are people that will that could potentially love him. And that Austin has kind of widened his eyes to this whole entire universe of possibilities. And this whole community that just takes him in as as one of his own, all, it all makes sense to me. Okay, you you talked a little bit before about the storylines and the stuff that we missed with you. And I know we're talking to Brett Cullen coming up, but I, I am so conflicted by this wrap up of Walt's story. And I, I feel a, a bit ambiguous about it because part of me is like, yeah, absolutely. He would just have that moment and then just walk away and walk out of your lives. But something in me wanted, like, I want more. Yeah, I hear you. I love this show so much, but this is something that has frustrated me for years is all these scenes that got cut because I really thought that they were wonderful. I thought that they helped explain the, the relationship between the Riggins brothers a little bit better. It's, it kind of shows a little bit more of what's going on in their lives, it shows the life that they were that they were brought up in. And it created a great friendship with me and Brett Cullen. But Besides that, like, I've always been frustrated that as an audience, you guys never got to see what we got to perform. Yeah. My little brother was in town. My actual little brother was in town. Taylor's big brother was in town. And it was like the four of us plus Brett Cullen were hanging out every day, shooting these scenes. And then all of it ended up on the on the cutting room floor. I know Brett was frustrated by it because yeah. he was brought on and there was this huge arc. And then all of a sudden it was kind of nothing. And it wasn't the fault of anyone other than just bad timing with this, this strike that happened on set. As we say, Derek, that's showbiz, kid. Yeah, it's showbiz. Okay, so now even Coach knows about the condoms. Why wh Why would Julie put those underwear in a bag under the kitchen sink and not like hidden at the bottom of her closet? I am befuddled by the entire synopsis of this. As smart as Julie is, I think maybe she did it because she's a dummy. I don't know. It's like, what were you thinking? I'm right there with you. One of the cool things about this scene, though, is that when I was a kid, I just kind of thought that my parents were in complete agreement on every issue regarding on how I should be raised. FNL does a really wonderful job, though, of giving us a glimpse at all these issues that can potentially pop up with parents and their children and how two different people, Coach and Tammy, who have two very different sensibilities, deal with them. And this scene's just a great example of that. It's one of the reasons, as we've said before, why I think that this relationship rings true to so many people and why it's heralded as arguably one of the best relationships on television. And then Maddie. Oh, my sweet Maddie. I love this. He's such a good guy. He can sense and he knows that Julie isn't ready for this and he stops it and <sighs> get a little, a little reprieve, a little breathe right there. I actually remember this episode very specifically because I remember the leg wrestling, which I'd never seen happen before, but I watched this episode with Zach Guilford in his apartment and I looked at him and I was like, what is that? It's like leg wrestling. Come on. I love it though, because the leg wrestling to me, it was just a, a beautiful little touch. It's the awkwardness and the fact that 
despite all these sexual urges, that they're still kids. And the reality is they're probably not ready for this at this moment in their no. lives. These are children. When I was 18, I thought I'm a man. But when I look at pictures of myself at that point in time, you're not. You're just, you're a child. You still have a child's brain. And you have all these sexual urges, but you're probably not ready to be doing some of these things at 15 and 16 years old. And so I, I just think it's a beautiful little moment between these two kids. There's all this pressure coming from outside factors, whether it's Riggins or Smash or whoever else, all the pressure from the football team of, for them to have sex. And I love that they just, at the end of this, decide we're not ready for it. Okay, I desperately need Tim Riggins to go to therapy. Each episode, I find more and more things. So what I garnered from this is that he's so upset and he's mad at his dad and he is looking to punish himself because of it. So he goes there knowing he's going to get his butt kicked. Like he wants to get hurt. It's a tough scene to watch. It's also, it was a tough scene to be involved in. I remember this night like it was yesterday because it was freezing, freezing cold. And so Annie and I, we pull up in the truck. And so we would sit there in the truck with the heater going. And you know how it is, Stacey. Whenever you uh, shoot those scenes where you're in a truck or you're in a car, you're basically isolated and stuck in that place. And so it was really the first time, I mean, Annie and I had worked together a bunch at this point in time, but this was one of those nights he probably shot for about four or five hours and just had great conversation in that truck. And it's kind of what solidified, I think, my, my friendship with Annie at that point in time. I got to know her really well and just got to like her as a person in, in that scene. So I, I have that, that fond memory of that. But then also rushing out there and, and breaking up that fight and being so proud of the fact that I got to have that moment as an actor in this episode and the fact that there's that resolution somewhat between the, the Riggins brothers after everything that happened with Walt. It's nice that it's Billy and Tyra that go to save him. They're the two people in this town yeah. that care about him the most. And the two of you go yeah. and save him. There's something really beautiful about that. Maddie loves Julie. <laughs> I love that Julie is finally honest with her folks, though, when she comes home and that she just tells him flat out, hey, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I lied to you, but I was with Matt and nothing happened because that's all Tammy wants. And I think as a parent, that's all any parent wants is just to know that your child can be honest with you and that your child can trust you and that you can trust your child. And then mom, Oh, God, Mom, I could just see something in Dana's eye. I knew something was going on and she was going to go do something bad. And then she pulls up to that church. Oh, that was embarrassing. I do think, looking back at like the the firing and the him handing her cash, that she might have a little bit of a, a lawsuit on her hands for wrongful termination. You could have made oh. some collect, collect money there. The only problem is that I think that Buddy also has a lawsuit against your mom for physically assaulting him, especially in front of his family. He was a slouch. <laughs> In the eyes of God. <laughs> In the eyes of God, her family, yeah, everyone. But yeah, so that's going to end our little wrap-up of the episode. We're going to jump back in here after this break with Brett Cullen, who plays, once again, Walt Riggins, my deadbeat father. So stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. We're back. 
the amazingly talented Brett Cullen, who plays my father, Walt Riggins, everyone's favorite deadbeat dad. Fans of our show will recognize Brett from his work on MASH, The Thornbirds, V, I'll Take Manhattan, Falcon Crest, The Young Riders, Wyatt Earp, Apollo 13, Something to Talk About, Suddenly Susan, The Simple Life, Legacy, The Replacements, Desperate Housewives, Monk, CSI Miami, Ghost Whisperer, The West Wing, Pepper Dennis, NCIS, Gridiron Gang, Ugly Betty, Ghost Rider, Lost, Damages, The Runaways, Justified, The Gates. Can you believe you have this many credits, Brett? I'm still going. Still going. Dark Knight Rises, White Collar, Red Dawn, 42, which I was in with Brett. Revenge, Criminal Minds, Under the Dome, Devious Maids, Person of Interest, The Shallows, Queen of the South, Narcos, True Detective, The Joker, Truth Be Told, Big Dogs, The Blacklist, Reminiscence, and literally, that's just to name a few of them. Brett has a resume a mile long with over 140 credits spanning 40 years. And I just want to say personally, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, because I know that you're probably working on 40 other projects as we're speaking. Thank you. Anything to be with my deadbeat son. (laughs) (laughs) Son of a bitch. First and foremost, man, how did you get into acting? I was in high school and I I did a play as a joke. It was a dare by these two girls. It was JB, a play in verse. It was a one act play competition in Texas. And I auditioned and went up there and made fun of everyone I'd seen on stage because it was, you know, it was just horrible. And I got the lead and it was, we, we actually did pretty well. I mean, it was horrible. The play was horrible. My performance was horrible. I had really long hair and I had to wear a wig to play JB, Joe. And I, anyway, I graduated high school. I went to California to surf all summer. I was gone for three months. I was a C minus student. I was smart, but I didn't care about school, but I had really good SAT scores. So my bride, I had applied to three colleges, Texas A&M, University of Texas, and University of Houston. And he tracked me down and said, shockingly, you've been accepted into a university. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, what do you want to do? And I said, well, everyone else is going to college. I guess I should. That's all I cared about really was surfing and baseball. And he, uh, told me about this man. He said, you should study theater. And I was like, theater? I don't, what? Because you were good in that play. And I was like, no, man, that's weird. Those people are weird. (laughs) You know, I don't want to do that. And he said, look, there's this really genius man there who I had met because my brother went to school there. His name was Cecil Pickett. And so he went to Cecil Pickett. He convinced me to to at least enroll because he said I could change my major if I didn't like it. And Cecil Pickett became my artistic father, my mentor, and he taught me my craft. And he taught the Quaid brothers, Brent Spiner, Tommy Schlamme. I mean, the list of people, you know, Cindy Pickett, his daughter, Sally Mays. I mean, the people in New York, I mean, 30, 40% of the people graduated from that university went right into the profession one way or another. So that's how it, that was my journey into the craft of acting. And then my senior year, I just graduated from University of Houston and I was doing the Houston Shakespeare Festival for okay. fourth season. And I had an agent. <laughs> I can't even say what I going to say. I had an agent who was a party boy and yeah. <laughs> uh, we partied, we partied a lot. A lot of people paid him a lot of money to party with him. You know? <laughs> anyway, he called him and said, you've got an audition for this movie. And I said, what's the movie? And he said, it's called Urban Cowboy with John Travolta. So I went to the audition and I was really angry because Dennis Quaid and I both went to U of H together and I've known him since I was 17. And he had originally been asked to play the part that uh, Travolta was playing. But then John's management went to Paramount and said, we'd like Dennis to step aside because John would like to do this role. And of course, after his success with Saturday Night Fever, but I was angry. And so I went in there, I was working at a printing press for a geological company. And I was wearing cowboy clothes. I had ink all over my arms. And I went in to read for his best friend. I read with John. And it was one of the best auditions I gave at that point in my career, for sure. And I didn't get the part because they wanted a good old boy. But his manager, Bob Lamont, 
called me up about a week later and asked me to have lunch with him, talk about my career. And I was on my way to Florida State to get my uh, master's in dialects and, and combat fighting, stage fighting. And I said, what are you talking about? My career? I'm a freaking student. He said, just have lunch with him. And so I did, and he convinced me to move to L.A., and I went to my dad, who, you know, I said, I don't have any money, because I had a free ride. They, were at, they guaranteed me, like, five grand when I graduated my equity card, and I was going to be a member of the Oslo State Theater. And so I said, I'm going to dump this, Dad, and he goes, I'll support you for a year. And I moved to L.A. September 5th, 1979, and my rent was $172 a month. And I moved in September 5th. A week later, I got an agent. Ro Diamond was her name. And then I had an audition for a series called The Chisholms with Robert Preston and Rosemary Harris, Donald Moffat was in it. I mean, Ben Ben Murphy, Victoria Racimo, Jimmy Van Patten, and and, uh, Delta Burke played my younger sister. And I think Susan Swift was in it as well. And I auditioned and I got it. Three weeks after moving to LA, I got a series. That's crazy. Yeah, well, the problem was, you know, I love Bob. God bless his soul. He's no longer with us, but he wanted me to do everything John did. You know, he made me get cowboy boots, which I never even had in Texas because <laughs> uh, I was a surfer. You know, I was like, I didn't like cowboys. And since then, I've learned to rope. And, you know, I, I used to rope with Ben Johnson and uh, raise money for charity and stuff. But I did that series and, and it was like pretty crazy. And Bob said, you have to have a publicist. So I got a publicist and I go to these meetings and these these writers would look at me and go, why am I interviewing you? And I'm like, I'd have to sell myself to them. And I'd say, well, I, I just moved to LA and I got the series. I'm working with Rosemary Harris and Robert Preston. And they go, oh, you were here three weeks? And I go, yeah. So they had a hook. And after all of that, I finally turned to Bob and said, I don't want to do this this way. I, I just, I love to work. I love to surf. And I don't want to go out there and sell myself. I just like my body of work to speak for itself, which at my age now, it kind of does. And I've kind of did the journey I wanted. And I've been very fortunate, you know, but that's how it all began. was like that. And then after the Chisholm's was canceled, I mean, it was too slow for network television back then. That actually leads me to my next question, Brett, because I was going to ask you like how you how you got involved with Friday Night Lights. Was it an audition? Was it an offer? That was an offer. I'd seen the movie, obviously. And I was like, okay, I, I, I didn't see Walt in the movie, obviously. I just kind of showed up and, and I met uh, Taylor and eventually met you. But yeah, that's how I just showed up, you know, in Austin, which was great because in my career, I've only, I think I've shot in Texas three times. That's it. Wow. Oh, wow. Not, but you, not, you not, being not, a Texas boy, that's amazing. Well, I did, I'm not counting the two little TV movies I did when I was a senior at University of Houston. But I mean, in terms of being an L.A. actor, getting hired to go somewhere, I, I did Gambler 5 there, which was a blast to do. Mm-hmm. Kenny Rogers and Mariska Hargitay and Scott Pollan. I played the Sundance Kid. And then I did a movie there. And then I did Friday Night Lights. Had you seen any of the show up to this point, the TV show? No, no. Oh, wow. I don't think it had started airing yet. I mean, I was I came in like the fifth or sixth episode. So they hadn't, I don't think they'd aired the show yet. Yeah, True. technically, yeah, technically it wasn't you came in episode 14. Uh, yeah, but the oh. show had probably literally just started when you came on. Yeah, well, if I didn't watch it, it was because I'm a moron. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. Look, I don't think people realize that. Like as actors, they're like, you didn't watch the show beforehand? And I'm like, do you have any clue how many auditions I go on? Like, I don't right. have time to watch every single show that I audition for and to have like a backstory and knowledge of that show. But what did you know about the, the character of Walt when you came on the show? 
just what I'd read, the scripts they gave me. They called me in LA and were talking to me. And I just said, look, Callaway Golf provides me with a new set of clubs every year. Can I use my own clubs? Because <laughs> I knew I was a golf hustler and an alcoholic. <laughs> and, I, and they went, yeah, that'd be great. So I, the only thing I cared about was my golf clubs. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you and Kyle played, quite, and, and Brad Leland played quite a bit of golf when I was there. Yeah, I remember being jealous because I'm not a golfer and being like, man, if I <laughs> right. picked up golf, I'd be able to hang out with these guys a little bit more. No. The, here's an interesting thing, though, is I show up in Austin and the dry had all these fittings and stuff. And I'm, I was driving with his driver and he kept saying, I said, how's it going? Because, you know, I'm a crew guy. So I start talking to the guys saying, well, how's it? You know, and they go, well, it's pretty interesting. They, it's all improv. And I said, what? He goes, it's pretty, you know, they, they, they don't rehearse either. And I said, what? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. And, and the director I had worked with before, the, I forget her name. Allison Liddy Allison Brown. Brown. Yeah. It was yeah. her. I say, well, what are we doing right now? He goes, well, I'm just going to take you back to the hotel. And I said, can you take me to set where they're shooting? I, I just, you know, and he goes, yeah, you should see this. So he takes me there and I see Alice and she goes, I said, do you really not rehearse? And she goes, no, it's sort of a thing. Peter likes the way this kind of works with the writers. It's really kind of a template for the scenes. And I went, oh. And she goes, well, watch Kyle. And he had the scene. It was with the... Smash. Smash, maybe. Yeah, he goes to see yeah. Smash and they end up playing football with all the little kids in the neighborhood yep. yes and i watched scene and i went you don't rehearse at all <laughs> you wouldn't know and i went wow this is gonna be cool flying by the seat of our pants so that was kind of a a neat thing i i someone had said kyle had never said actual an actual line that was written <laughs> and i finally got him to say a line that was written <laughs> when i'm on the football field giving him a hard time about my son why he's not playing him more and right before i steal the video camera i wouldn't leave because he kept saying, you know, oh, coach, oh, I mean, Mr. Riggins and and, finally, and the line was, you need to leave and uh, or something like that. So I finally got him to say it. I felt real good about that. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about talking to some of the crew members. And that was one of the things when we were working on this show. I don't know if people know this, but in episode 16, we showed up to set one day and there was a representative from NBC there. And they say there's been a local strike. And I can't remember, Brett, do you remember if it was a local Teamster strike? No, I know exactly what it was because I was okay. on the screen. I just get bored at the time. It was the location managers went on strike. Okay. They wanted to join the Teamsters and be union and the Teamsters backed them. You know, and I think you or some of the other actors like, what do we do? And yeah. so I called SAG and I said, look, I'm on the show. And they said, well, we're not on strike. So, and I said, well, look, makeup and hair, down, all these people are walking. Because, oh, if, you don't, if they don't put makeup on you, then you don't have to work. And I went, well, they don't put makeup on me, period, anyway. Yeah. yeah. And she said, oh, well, then you have to work. So I gathered, I guess you and, and Taylor and I, yeah. Taylor and I, and I think there was, anyway, I, I talked to all the actors and I said, look, if you want to be cool, do your job because otherwise you're going to get fired, you know, or you'll get fined. I said, but in between takes in between setups, go out on the street and walk with the, with the, uh, or stand around with the, with the protesters, the teamsters who are protesting. Mm -hmm. Of course I did. I think you and uh, Taylor played football in the front yard. <laughs> Come on, man. That sounds about right. Uh, actually, I was like, Taylor and I went into the wardrobe trailer and pulled our own costumes. You know how it is. As an actor, you've got all these costumes that wardrobe has pulled for you. And I pulled all of the stuff that I never got to wear, all the stuff that looked cool. It's called your closet. Have, yeah, I may have I may have pulled uh, stuff out of other people's line. I don't know. Right. Well, the, the interesting <laughs> thing about that was it only lasted three hours or four hours because they brought these sound guys in. They were non-union. And the guy looked at me and he goes, uh, I need to shave your chest. And I went, excuse I me? I remember that. He goes, that's how we have to put the mic on you. And I said, no, I don't know what universe you 
worked in, but you're not shaving my chest and, and you're not putting the mic on my body. You're going to put it on my shirt. And he's like, well, I don't know. Uh, geez. Uh, and I said, dude, that's how it's going to work. And, and the sound was so bad and it was not going well that I think finally the producers just said, that's a wrap. And then yeah. the next day it was sorted out. I don't know if you know this, but I talked to Nan Bernstein, who was our line producer on the show. And Nan let me know. I feel like it was probably like a year later. She's like, you know, that day that we had the little strike. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, if you guys hadn't worked that day, there's a very good chance that Friday Night Lights would have been canceled. Somebody had called from NBC and was pissed and said, what the hell is going on down there? Nan said, what do you mean? And he goes, I heard that you guys are having a strike. What's going on down there? Nan goes, nothing. We got everything in the can today that we needed to get. And so she had footage right. of all these scenes that you and I shot. None right. of it was usable, I think, probably because of sound or whatever else. But right. it was really unfortunate for you and I because we had some really, really good stuff together in these scenes that never saw the light of day. In fact, all the storyline from episode 16 with you and I was completely and totally cut. There's a couple of scenes that were put on the DVDs, extras, like deleted scenes. Well, there was stuff. that scene. There was the one where you and I had the big fight. Yeah. Got your face. That stayed in the show, I think. No. No, no, it was a deleted scene. Oh, because I yeah. used on my reel one of the scenes that was deleted where I get Taylor drunk and I started telling him that big, huge monologue that I had. And it's so good. Mm -hmm. And I just, it was, I, my wife bought me the first season DVD yeah. collection and I stole it off the deleted scenes because it's on there. It feels, I use the analogy of like every scene with you and Taylor is like somebody jumping on ice in the middle of a frozen lake. And it's like fissuring out, like you're just, there's this tension and you know that it's about to explode. You know what I mean? That this ice yeah. is about to crack through. And, and it actually does eventually in that moment in episode 17, when you steal the video camera from the AV office. And then coach asks you about the stolen camera. Of course, you deny it. But later in the episode, Tim finds the camera and then he confronts you, which leads to this beautiful and, and really tragic scene between the two of you where you finally leave Dylan. And that's the last we see of your character. But what do you remember about shooting those scenes with Taylor and, and all that tension that was it was kind of under the surface. I mean, it's it's kind of a lesson. You remember the last line of that scene? I, I think you say something like, this is where I leave. Watch how easy it is or something along yeah, those lines. Yeah, watch how easy this is. Yeah, watch yeah. how easy this is. Yeah. The interesting thing with Taylor was that, you know, I didn't know him and yeah. had to be buddies a little bit, hanging out. I've seen him a few times since socially mm -hmm. uh, in restaurants and whatnot. But, you know, I didn't know how he worked. He seemed very internal and very, very thoughtful, which I really liked about him as an actor. But the, the weird thing about that show, which was beautiful, was that you didn't know where you were going to go. You had an ending, the template that they would give you, but you had to kind of just see where it, it was really, truly like what life is. You start a conversation and sometimes you never know how it's going to end, but we did. But it's how do you get there? How do you get to that moment? And Taylor and I had a very sort of dysfunctional love-hate relationship with each other. I mean, not Taylor, but Tim. his character and I. You know, I really liked Taylor. I, you know, obviously you and I got along really well. We didn't have a very good relationship on screen, obviously, but uh, <laughs> Taylor and I did. I mean, I remember distinctly one scene that I did with him that is sort of, I think, is the core of, of who he and I are in terms of the show was the scene at my house where we're sitting by the fire drinking beer. Yeah. That to me felt like what that would have been had I never left, what our relationship would have probably been like. 
And then the heartbreak of when I come to the football game and you bring me, that was like, you kind of saw his vulnerability. You saw his real love for his son and how deeply he was scarred by the lack of not being in their lives and y'all's lives, the two of you. But I I think it was pretty powerful. I I was actually really surprised that they never thought about bringing Walt back. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because I thought it was a really interesting relationship. I thought it was a really complicated and meaningful to both of you to have this this man that sort of walked away and never really gave either of you much, Mm. just took, but wanted to give back, but he couldn't. Because he, he was an alcoholic. He had a disease. Yeah. As much as, you know, as actors, you try and figure out, well, oh, yeah, he's just a dickhead or he's not a very nice guy. But, you know, he was sick. He had some demons. In episode 14, when you were talking to Tim, like you said, by the fire, you said things like, you're welcome here anytime, son, but me going to Dylan, that's a whole other thing. And it was like you... Walt couldn't even step foot back in Dylan. I'm wondering what, as an actor, you took that to mean. What had Walt done? Well, you know, and and I know a couple of guys like this that are hustlers that have ripped people off. I think it meant two things. One, he couldn't go back there because of of that. There was probably people who wanted a piece of him. Two, the, the haunting memories of what happened in that family and what made him walk away. You know, I don't care how ill you are or how much the disease of alcoholism has affected you. You have moments where you, I'm sure he sat and cried his head off, missing his yeah. family, you know, missing his sons and realizing he had two boys that he had deserted. And that's something it's hard to swallow as a grown man that you have failed on some capacity as a human being. And I don't think he wanted to go back. And that's why I think he drank so much. Is I mean, obviously he had propensity for that, but I think it was more about trying to cushion that horror in his in his heart. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I think was happening then. <laughs> yeah. It's it's been a while since we shot that, but I, I went back and looked at it. It resonates. It it just you just nailed those scenes. You nailed all this all the stuff with Taylor. There's just a tension underneath it. And as Stacy said in one of the episodes, it's like you want to be there. You want to be with your son. And that's what I think is such I actually so wonderful he, about it. Yeah. I also think it's a lot to do with Taylor being younger, mm-hmm. probably didn't witness as much of the ugliness that happens with when a family falls apart and you were older and you witnessed it. It's sort of like my older brother saw some stuff in my family and my sister saw some stuff in my family that I never saw. 100%. Uh, With my parents and with my aunt, that she was a really bad alcoholic, functioning, but, Mm -hmm. and they were of that generation. They lived through the Great Depression and World War II and the Korean War and the way they thought and and the things they did to each other was probably something that had I seen, it would have changed my perspective of the people that raised me. You know what I mean? So I think it's the same of Taylor. It's like Michelle, my wife, her parents got divorced at 13 and both her parents are gone now. But even, you know, all these years we've been together, been together 37 years and she still she said, used to say, I used to think about like my parents will get back together one day, oh, you know, God. you know, it's that, that I, my parents never divorced, which was a good thing that can tear a kid apart in terms of like you're torn between two people that you Irregardless of your, if they're, you know, my parents weren't abusive or anything like that, but I'm just saying people who have abusive parents, they still love. You have a tendency to to glorify them and and, and put them on a pedestal because you didn't experience the things that, that the older sibling did, you know? Right. And also I had a, my, my, both my brothers had a rough time with my dad and I was, my father 
was on the road a lot. He was an oil man, but he spent a lot of time. He coached me in baseball from the age of five till I was 15. And then I said, you have to get away from me because <laughs> he was yeah. really hard on me. And I was really talented. My friend who became the general manager of the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, Chuck Lamar, actually, he told John Havlicek at this fishing tournament that I was the most talented 12-year-old baseball player he'd ever seen in his career because I was a pitcher. My father gave me the, a lot of like the idea of winning at all costs, which was bad. But at the same time, you know, people ask me about that. And I say, well, you know, the thing about my father, that's really beautiful. It also is really painful was that period was hard, but that what he instilled in me has allowed me at my age to continue to work in this business. And I think it helped me in this business is the the sense of you're not going to hire me now, but you are eventually, God damn it. You know, I'm not, I'm not going away. And it has paid off. In that regard, the competitive edge that he gave me, the heart and soul came from my mother and and Cecil Pickett in terms of my craft. And also Kim Stanley, who I studied with when I was doing Falcon Crest years ago. She changed my perspective on how I approached the work. Didn't change my craft necessarily. It just tweaked it in a weird way that made it more real to me and more passionate. Like it wasn't me trying to figure out how to play something. It's like I always try and find the soul of the character now before I do anything. The show Big Dogs, you mentioned in the intro, is a show I did for Amazon. And I play a captain in the police force. And it's based in 2008. If there had been no bailouts, what the world would look like through the New York Police Department. And I went to the writer of the book and the director, and I just said, I need you to tell me one thing. And he goes, what? And I go, what's the most important thing to this man? And he goes, his son, who was a Marine like he was and died in Iraq. And he said, so he's gone, but he's the only thing you hold on to. So the only thing you have is the memory of your son and the New York Police Department, your division. And as soon as he told me that, I knew who this guy was. Yeah, and I knew how I could approach it. If you know someone or a character's emotional, their need, then to me, it, it, the, the other stuff falls into place. The physicalizations, the hair, however you want to look, it all comes down to what you are trying to understand another human being, which is our job, is to portray other human beings and to look at society as a mirror and show them what we are and what we can be and what we aren't, what we strive to be. And that was a little bit of Walt too. It's like I had alcoholism in my family I, and that's not a big thing. It wasn't, you know, I just had, you know, some people who drank too much and probably shouldn't have been drinking, but I also understood it, you know, and I my best friend died of alcoholism. So to stride into that world, you understand that the behavior of Walt is one thing, but what they don't show is what happens in private when he's alone and the pain he may feel or the guilt he may feel or the anger he may feel at his inability to stop doing what he's doing. And I think that's what makes your performance work is the fact that, and I mean, it's acting 101, it's don't judge your character and you don't. You may not, Brett Cullen, agree with the things that Walt does, but at the same time, you've made the effort to understand why he does the things that he does. (laughs) There's a lot of things, a lot of characters I played, I didn't like I was like, no, but yeah, you you may not like it. There's a lot of things. Yeah, I'm the same way, man. But you have to find the justification for it as an actor, I think. And I think that that's what works for it. Well, you know, like the replacements, people always go, oh, you played the asshole quarterback. And I remind them, I'm like, you realize the movie's about replacement. About unionization. And these were a bunch of scabs. Yeah. (laughs) Like fighting for my job. And yeah, he's he's an arrogant guy, but he's doing what he thinks is right. And, uh, you know, I asked Gene Hackman about that on the movie. I said, do you ever try and find the gray area when you're playing like sort of the bad guy? And he goes, no. Why would you do that? Just be bad. It's fun. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> that works too. Yeah. 
true. Brett, I would be remiss because anyone who listens to this podcast knows if I didn't ask you about working on the West Wing. Stacey's a diehard West Wing fan. I have to remind her sometimes that this is not a West Wing podcast. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, during the first year of the pandemic, my wife and I rewatched the entire show. And it's still, in my mind, is one of the best written shows ever on television. Perfect. Direction, acting, writing, everything about it. You know, I, I, I mean, we watched it. And I didn't like go at ever at any point ever go, ooh, that was the wrong note. That mm-hmm. actor did hit the wrong note or that actor overacted or something. It just seems so right. And for me working on it, you know, I is just shocking that you actually used said that I was on MASH because I was. <laughs> <laughs> I went all the way back, baby. But I worked with Alan Alda on MASH. Oh, yeah. heaven. The great story with him was I, I, the first scene we had was when we were introduced. I sit in front of his, you know, in his desk and I come in and we talk. Before we do that, I go, you know, Alan, you and I've worked together before. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah, I did an episode of MASH. It was called Blood and Guts. And he went, what was, and I said, Gene Evans, I think was the main guest star. And there were, the story was him bringing, he was a reporter from a, a town, brought blood from that town. I was going to do the story about the people who gave the blood and the soldiers that were injured in the war. And of course, none of us were injured. The three actors that he was like doing the story on, I, I fell off my motorcycle. One guy got shrapnel from throwing a grenade in a pond trying to get fish. You know, no one got injured in, in like in battle. So anyway, I, I said to Alan, I told him the whole story because I have a hard time remembering a lot dialogue from last week or what, you know, I says, I can't remember that. Well, the last episode of the first season, it was the second to last season. I found the VHS tape of that episode and I queued it up and then I went to the producer director and I said, do you have a VHS? He goes, yeah, I have one right here at Video Village. So we got Alan. We we're on the stage at Warner Brothers. This is where I met Rita Wilson. She, Rita was in that episode as well. She played one of the nurses. She did like three or four where that, that would Alan would make out with. Yeah. The scene is I'm in a hospital bed. He's talking to me and then he gets up and walks in, and, and Rita walks by. So we watched the thing and he goes, God, I'm sorry, Brad. I don't remember this at all. And then the, Rita walks by. Ooh, I remember the dame though. I remember. And I was like, Fuck. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> but no, I had a, I had a actual blast, and I tried to convince the producers. I kept saying, "Look," because Alan was a moderate Republican, and I was mm-hmm. the Southern conservative Republican. And I said, you "Guys, should let him win." get a whole new cast and you're not going to be paying half a million dollars an episode to some of these actors and stuff. And he said, no, he said the cost of this show based on the writers, the producers and everyone who's getting a piece, he goes, it costs Warner brothers three times what it, it three, they could do three series based on one, you know, on their budget. So he said, we can't do it. So that's why the show ended. It was too good is the problem. It was too good and it was too expensive as, as you know, I mean, how many years did it run? Eight, I think. Seven. Seven. Yeah. 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 One last thing, we have to wrap up in a second, but I was doing a little research on you and I found an article and it was 10 things you don't know about Brett Cullen. And number one was this. At this point, there aren't any controversies that he has been involved in. So I just want to say kudos to you for this <laughs> career. And we're not having been involved in any controversies. It's a big beat. Well, there have been, but they're not. <laughs> the internet does not know about them. <laughs> no, no. I try to keep my head down. Like I said earlier, I, you know, I'll go to premieres. I'll do the press they want me to do. And occasionally I'll do press on my own about something if I really care about it or if I've produced it. But for the most part, like I said, I love to work yeah. and I love to act and I love to 
produced as well. I've discovered I'm pretty good at it, but the tough thing is finding the money. But I just, I'm an anomaly. I've been married to the same woman for 30 years. We've been together 37 in Hollywood. That's like, that's, we've been married 80 years in Hollywood years. You know, it's, I want to be with my family. I want to, I want to help my daughter. I want to surf. I want to play golf with my friends. I want to be able to go to the grocery store without somebody going, oh my God. And the great thing is, you know, I do get recognized, but the great thing is with pandemic and a mask, they don't know who the hell I am. <laughs> but it's the anonymity but is nice. I wanted to tell you one thing, HBO. I just finished a series for them. It was called The Untitled Lakers Project. And now I think it's called Winning Time. It's John C. Riley. It's Adrian Brody. It's Spencer uh, Garrett. Spencer Garrett, Jason Clark. Yeah. Me, Sally Fields, Tracy Lett, Steve Gurgis, both Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights. Yeah, I cannot wait. But it's going to drop in March, the show itself. But Adam McKay directed the pilot, executive producer on it. Max Bornstein and Steve Heck were the writers. Well, there's more than that who wrote it. There's a lot of executive producer writers, but that's that's sort of the powerhouse team. Mm -hmm. And it's so good. The cast is outstanding. Dude, thank you so much for coming on here and being with us and taking the time. As I said, I know you got a million and one things on your plate right now, but thank you. It's just Christmas right now, brother. It's just Christmas. That's all I'm dealing with right now. I made it it so that we didn't have to have this conversation on Christmas Eve. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't have been here. (laughs) Of course you wouldn't have. You're a deadbeat dad. You want nothing to do with me on Christmas. Yeah. Well, of course, I want to stay in character. That is it for episode 17. But please join us next time when we unpack episode 18 with special guest Asha Davis, who played Waverly Grady, the wise beyond her years girlfriend of Smash Williams. But until then, clear eyes. Bull hearts. Can't lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our websites, ClearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.